Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a quick message for you guys from my Decorify. Look, the older we get, the harder it becomes to find ways to unleash our creative energy. But with their curated DIY art kits, My Decorify brings your next adult home decor art project straight to your door. Head to mydecorify.com today to get your very own DIY kit or to check out their incredible South Asian inspired notebooks and prints. And of course, use the code TRAILBLAZERS30 for 30% off your first order. Now on to our episode. Joining me today is Usman Ahmed, head of global public policy and research at PayPal. Usman began his career in public service at nonprofits focused on voting rights and good governance. While a student at Michigan Law, he pursued a legal fellowship at eBay, quickly ascending to the role of policy counsel just a few years after graduating. Shortly after PayPal was spun off of eBay, he joined their team in his current role. Today, he also teaches international and fintech law as an adjunct professor at Georgetown's Law School. He's a Millennium Fellow at the Atlantic Council and a Security Fellow at the Truman National Security Project, and his research has been widely published. Beyond his JD from U Michigan, Usman holds an MA from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a BA from the University of Maryland. A huge welcome to Usman. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sumi, so much for having me and for putting on this podcast. It's really exciting. I appreciate that. Well, in the spirit of law school admission season, I want to start with a very simple question. Why law? No, uh, it's interesting. I didn't even realize it was law school admission season. I imagine there's a lot of South Asians and a lot of people generally who are uh, checking their emails regularly right now, wondering where they're going to be going. Given the nature of this podcast, I'll share. I never knew this when I was thinking about law school or uh, the law more generally, but in digging back in my family history, I, I found out that my grandfather, who passed away before I was born, so that's why I never knew that much about him, was actually a judge in India in a very oh, wow. small village in Varanasi. And so, again, I didn't know that until after I went to law school, but I wonder if there's some thread there. That's on my dad's side. On my mom's side, nobody was a lawyer, but there were a lot of people on my mom's side. And I think that was definitely an inspiration for me who were involved in policy or politics in the subcontinent. And so there is some history there, but it might have just been watching Law and Order when I was a kid. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. That could have definitely been an influence. I'll just share that I thought law school was policy school. I knew I loved policy. I grew up in D.C., even though my parents, they immigrated in the 60s. And so they were relatively recent immigrants as I was growing up. This myth of the model minority and all that. My mom in particular was just like, we're here, we're American, we're going to like engage. And so we would like go march on the Capitol when there was like march against a, a, if you remember, there was a war in the Caucasus in Bosnia in particular, in Yugoslavia in the early 90s. And so I remember marching on that issue. And so it was just kind of this spirit, in, especially again from my mom, of we're American. Americans like engage with their environment, even in where they came from, they were engaging. 
And so it was like, this is your country. You should care. You should get civically engaged. They always talked about voting and wow. politics and policy. And again, my dad was an engineer. I didn't say this. My dad was an engineer. My mom just ran a small business, a babysitting business, but they believed in the American vision of civic engagement. So I think that's probably the main thing that drove me down that path. Super, super interesting. I mean, clearly your upbringing has played such a big role in you choosing to pursue this profession. I find it interesting because typically a lot of people who especially immigrate to the States have a very like, keep your head down, don't get involved mentality. Did that ever present itself or was it always, no, stay civically engaged, engage where you can? I've listened to this podcast. It's excellent, by the way. And I've heard on a few Thank episodes, <laughs> people talk about 9-11 as a really significant moment in their lives. Yeah. And so certainly, you know, I mentioned that 90s period, the Bosnia War, the Iraq War. Those were also situations, even though just like with 9-11, there weren't South Asians involved, but there was this broader sentiment about foreign policy, immigration, et cetera. And so those moments did shape my parents and shape me in large part to say, we left our home. <laughs> like We can't. I know a lot of South Asian families, they spend a lot of time talking about back home. But I don't yeah. remember much of that. I remember a lot of talk about this is our home. And what wow. are we doing here? And my mom always talking about like, again, going to DC and engaging with different things. With that said, I'll just share that like, because you're asking about law school, when I got into law school, my dad and my mom, again, both as we were growing up, and I know I've listened to this podcast, the push to become like an engineer or a doctor, yep. <laughs> is, it was certainly there in the community, but my parents were very much like, do whatever you're passionate about, do whatever makes the world a better place, do whatever makes you happy and makes those around you, you know, better. But I'll just share, when I got into law school, I also really remember my dad came with this cutout of the Washington Post that he had saved clearly for a long time. And he's like, so I just wanted to show you this. It's a, a list of salaries, like who has the highest salary by profession oh in D.C.? And he was like, lawyer's number two, but doctor's number one. So I just <laughs> went. <laughs> and my dad never cared about money. And again, he was always pushing us to do whatever we were passionate about. But it is just there, right? And, and my wife is a doctor. And so it's obviously an incredible profession. And my dad was an engineer, and that's an incredible profession. And there is this kind of communal <laughs> support around that. But I was very blessed and lucky, I think, that my parents were generally very supportive of do whatever you want to do. Absolutely. So you had all this tremendous support about pursuing your dreams for law, but was that always the plan? I mean, can you speak to the early innings of your career and what you did leading up to law school and then in law school itself? So I, I mentioned 9-11 as this formative moment, I think, for a lot of South Asians in the law and policy space. But actually, my forming moment, I mentioned that Bosnia and Iraq war, but probably the galvanizing moment for me in law and policy was the Bush versus Gore election. If oh, you wow. remember the hanging chads and the, you know, yep. 2000, right? So that moment, again, just feeling like this was my country and there was nothing more important and nothing more central to what it means to be American than exercising your right to vote and self-determination. I was not jaded. It was great, right? Like I feel like now at my age, when I see things like this, because unfortunately they still happen, yeah. I get jaded. But at that age, it was just like, I want to do something about this. I really want to change this. So I went and worked at a bunch of voting rights nonprofits for several years wow. ahead of law school, working on how can we fix the electoral college? 
How can we do things like instant runoff voting? How can we just make our system more democratic, make representation more fair? And it's hard to now, a little bit older, a little bit more jaded. (laughs) We were researching and talking about discrimination against African-American voters in that stage. We were talking about putting up barriers to accessing the polls, like the same issues that are in the news today and yesterday. They continue to drive me, and I'm happy to talk about that, that my career has kind of gone full circle, and it's been fascinating to jump back into those issues now at corporate. But at that time, that was what was motivating me, Simi. Like, I was thinking about, I read this book that's quite famous, How Democratic is the American Constitution?, by doll. And it just really made me want to live. I was, I'm, I'm still an incredibly passionate American. I love America and everything. It's coming it through. I can see it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And it really comes down to that notion of freedom, people choosing what's best for them. And that to me was manifested most specifically in voting. Yeah. So that's really where my early career path took me. And it, it was fascinating and fun and challenging. Obviously, working in the nonprofit sector is resource stricken. And, you know, you spend days and months and years writing the best piece ever. And you're not really sure who is reading it and what impact it has. And sometimes it takes years and decades to actually manifest. But I wouldn't have traded that time for the world. It was an incredible time to be engaging on those issues. And it really did form the bedrock of how I think about the world and approach issues going into law school and then afterwards. Yeah, well, it sounds like an incredibly powerful and transformative time in your life. You mentioned the fact that a lot of these organizations are resource stricken, and as a result, it formed the bedrock of the rest of your career. In what ways did having this specific nonprofit experience pique your interest in pursuing a legal fellowship at eBay in the tech realm? And how did these experiences shape your approach to the work that you received in big tech? So to this point, right, we've been talking about somebody who hasn't spoken about tech at all. right? And so where does that left turn come from? So I guess I did mention my dad was an engineer and my eldest brother pursued that path as well and worked at AOL during its early days and then moved out to the valley relatively early. And so he was really a big magnet, I think, to the (laughs) tech world. And so I remember in like, middle school or something, he got me like a mainframe hard drive and we took it apart and he got me like learn C programming in 21 days. And I did that. And so, you know, there was always an interest there and it was fascinating to see the development of that stuff. But I was always a little bit removed from it and thinking like, no, 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 some of these civic and government initiatives are where my passions lie. And so the eBay fellowship was really a lark, I think. It was really like meant to be a one year, like, let me just explore this. My brother was really pushing hard for it. And he was very instrumental, I think, in that happening. But, you know, I really thought it was just going to be, okay. I'm going to do this for a while and then I'm going to go back to a voting rights nonprofit or something like that or into the government. But it was fascinating, Simi. Like, it was just new issue every day, something that was front page news and fascinating to think about and work through. I just got hooked real quick into the dynamic environment that tech policy presented at that time in the late 2000s, early 2010s. It was meant to be a one-year fellowship. I think they thought I was going to go to a law firm. 
I thought I was going to go to a voting rights nonprofit, but I just said, I don't want to leave. Like, can we do something? <laughs> can we wow. just make a position? And my fellowship got extended a little bit until we kind of created a legal position where I worked on intellectual property stuff. It was purely, as I think you've heard other people say on this podcast, definitely not planned, definitely yeah. not linear, very much happenstance and environmental factors. And after that, I was hooked and I've been in the space ever since. Can you speak to some of those issues, the front page problems that reeled you in? Sure. It gets pretty nerdy, but I'll try my best. Now, the first one was this topic of net neutrality. So I'm sure, you know, you, you definitely heard that. And that's the fun part of this is that there are some wonky policy issues I work on that really nobody knows about or understands. But <laughs> I'm sure. Thanks to the internet, I think a lot of people have now heard of and know yeah. about these issues. And so net neutrality and protecting that, because I was at internet companies, was very much a big focus area early in my career. And then actually, it's fascinating we're having this conversation now. I think a couple of days ago was the 10-year anniversary of the proposal of two laws. One was called the Stop Online Piracy Act, and the other one was called the Protect Intellectual Property Act, SOPA and PIPA. They were well known as in the DC policy community, but everybody else in the world knew them because there was an internet blackout that the companies kind of worked together with a bunch of grassroots organizations to create where Wikipedia essentially like you couldn't access Wikipedia that day. Google's logo was blacked out. A bunch of other companies. Sounds like my worst nightmare. (laughs) So a lot of students, I don't know, you know, where you were at that time, but a lot of students were very pissed off that day because they were like, I can't write my term paper because I can't find Wikipedia. Any information. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or Google. Yeah. So that was definitely front page fascinating to be at the tables where it was discussed as to like, hey, can we activate and engage with internet users to see what they think of this? Those were definitely a couple of them, cybersecurity, privacy, which continues to be such a hot button issue, really being part of, I wouldn't say the formative part of that, because I think that was really like the mid 90s and and early 2000s. But that was where it got up to a much bigger, broader level where hundreds of millions of Americans were all of a sudden aware of this space because they were using it and they liked it (laughs) and they liked a lot of it. And so being able to engage on some of those things was just a really cool learning experience. It sounds as though you were becoming a part of the tech policy landscape at a time when tech policy was really starting to touch everybody's lives because of the ways in which tech had just exploded. And it seems as though that really tracks with your career and your passions for doing things that touch the everyday American. I'm a big fan of heuristics and frameworks and stuff. And so certainly it's nice to be able to bucket the career as working on some of those really big, broad societal issues. And I appreciate that. But again, it's it was not planned. (laughs) It was very (laughs) much luck, happenstance, grace, whatever you want to call it, that uh, just feel very blessed to have had some of those opportunities. So in more ways than one, it sounds as though you accelerated your career accidentally, as you said. And while you're at eBay, PayPal has actually spun off of eBay in 2015, and you opted to pursue a role with PayPal. Was that always the plan? Yeah, so I'll just share with you, when PayPal decided to spin off from eBay, they were becoming two independent companies. And when corporations split, it's almost like a fantasy draft. Players get selected from within the (laughs) the existing companies to go to each side. 
And so I actually got drafted to Team eBay. Oh, wow. And so given that there was this draft going on, regardless of which side I was ending up on, I was thinking, let me just look at the landscape. So I was exploring all sorts of opportunities and I was really blessed and lucky on his first day, Franz Posh, the new chief corporate affairs officer at PayPal, just kind of interviewed me and said, hey, would you want to come over and, and lead our policy shop? And that was cool because that was my boss's job at eBay. And so that was exciting. And then I really appreciate it that you framed it as a new venture because it was a 17-year-old company at that time. <laughs> but it felt like a startup. It was the world's biggest startup, right? It was 15,000 people, but we had like no processes. We had an independent brand amongst consumers, but amongst the corporate stakeholders, we did not really. It was always just a part of eBay for the last 14 years wow. or whatever it was. The company was only public for a year in 2001 before it got bought by eBay. So it was a lot. It was really startup-y. I suppose I've never worked at a startup, so I can't say, but it felt like the momentum and the creativity, the like, we're starting from scratch. What is the mission of this company? What are the values this company wants to base itself off of? What is our approach when we think about government and public and nonprofit sectors? That was all uh, fascinating and fun to create, right? When I came into eBay in 2010, yeah. eBay in 2010, I think was the biggest tech company. Like it was huge. Probably. <laughs> Google took over obviously quickly and the rest is history. But it was a big company and it was a big team. And then to move to a place where it was a big company and the amount of people, but there was no processes, there was no restrictions in one sense on what you could do and what you could create. And I think it's pretty incredible what the leadership team in particular has created since that time. Yeah. So you're in this newly minted role and a pretty senior role in this new venture, but at a company that's still pretty large. Can you talk about the early days of shaping your role and shaping the organization and shaping the processes that, like you said, you were just starting to put together for the first time? I'm just going to pull out something that you said, because I always <laughs> love it when an interviewer just leads right down the right path. I think shaping is exactly the right word. I think it starts from the mission, vision, and values. Like I really believe that for any organization, setting out what those are is the most important thing. I just... I do a, a few nonprofit gigs and we just did a strategic retreat for one of them. And we spent the entire weekend basically just trying to get what is our theory of change. It's time very well spent because the entire next year, years, and maybe decades and longer are based upon those early meetings. I think PayPal to that point was certainly an innovative company, a successful company, but I don't think it had nearly as inspiring of a mission vision values as the leadership team at that time really set down on paper and in particular this notion of financial health this notion that there are millions and millions of americans and billions of people around the world who are underserved by yep. the financial system and there is a better way and we as a private sector company with our technology with our people we can do something and we can also crowd in a lot of other players to help to move this because there's no way. And that's one thing, again, I love about our CEO and, and our leadership team is we're not in a winner take all space. Yeah. The problems are too big. <laughs> and so we really do have this ethos of this is a mission that's beyond even our own single company's capability to solve, but we're going to do everything we can to try to do it. 
and again, that's where my role comes in is how do we engage with the rest of the environment that's going to be so central to potentially ever achieving that mission. So yeah, it was very much about shaping. It was very much about thinking very differently from how the company had approached things to that point and setting it on this new path that I think has been very successful from a market perspective, which is great, but it's done more to achieve some of those positive societal, socioeconomic types of goals than I had ever seen to that point at the company. Yeah, super, super fascinating. I mean, it's almost like being in a startup environment, but within an organization that's much larger, obviously, than the average startup. In that vein, I'm curious, I mean, how has your role shape-shifted over the past number of years, given that PayPal has grown the way that it has expanded into so many international countries, become such a staple of the fintech industry? What does your day-to-day look like, and how has that changed over time? Maybe that's the right opportunity to talk about the full circle in the career, because that's just been so meaningful to me. I mentioned kind of all this focus on good governance and voting rights, and it was, in my first several years at the company, a very different set of issues. But now, as you've been seeing, if you're following the news, companies are engaging with now all of these societal issues. And so I don't think that was part of my remit when I was first brought into this, but it's, again, the leadership team is really at the forefront of it, and credit to them for and our CEO in particular, for taking that approach that companies live in societies, companies are part of countries, companies are part of a community. It's going to be good for our shareholders, it's going to be good for our employees, it's going to be good for the company, but it's going to be good for society if we engage with society. We're not the solution to all of life's problems, (laughs) but we can and should engage with the world around us in an effort to shape a better society. Absolutely. And so the day-to-day, Simi, is almost anything. It's very broad-ranging. I have an incredible team. And so a lot of it is just supporting them and helping them to achieve and do incredible things. And certainly supporting all of our internal adjacent teams and strategy and the business side and product to deliver on their goals. And then there's this, again, very, I think, new element to working in a private sector company, which is engaging with all of these other broader issues. And again, this comes back to what I said earlier about setting what the mission, vision, values of the company are. Inclusion was one of the values that was set in 2015. There was conversation about inclusion at that time, no question. But obviously, in the last couple of years, there's just been a tremendous focus in the world, let alone the corporate industry, on that set of issues. And I think we were very, very well placed to engage on that because of those early conversations. Similarly, inequality. The French professor whose name is escaping me right now wrote the big book that really started fostering a lot of the discussion around inequality. And so certainly that issue has become greater and greater. But setting down those values in the early days was what prompted the company. And I was lucky to be a very, very small part of this, cannot take credit at all, to essentially right before the pandemic started, to create a, an employee financial wellness program that basically made everybody a oh, stockholder, wow. provided healthcare benefits, did all these wonderful things to reinforce the financial health, again, the mission, vision, value of the company. And lo and behold, COVID happens, the world gets turned upside down. And it was so meaningful to do that right ahead of that 
change in dynamic. Yeah. And so I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it gets to the notion of the job is, uh, again, I'm very lucky, very blessed and grateful that I get to work on so many fun and, and interesting things. I'm not at all at the center of some of those great things that the company does, but if I can claim being even a small part of it, it definitely helps me uh, (laughs) sleep better and enjoy the work because it's really impacting people's lives in a positive way. And that I think is, I imagine what most of us want to be getting out of our work lives and our lives more generally. To me, it reads as though it's a vision that's very future forward and grasps the elements of how people want to blend their work lives, their personal lives, transformation in society. And you're using that understanding to actually shape company policy and the broader mission you have for the fintech industry, which is powerful and prescient, in my opinion. I'm curious, can you share some anecdotal examples of the type of thing that comes across your desk on any given day and how you go about managing it? So... It can be almost anything. It really can be very, very short term things. You know, this is going on on the platform. We need to respond to it. This new regulation is being considered. We need to provide some input. This set of companies is going to be putting forward a letter in support of this initiative or that. Do we want to engage with it or not? And I'm noting all of those kind of more shorter term things because I think they are what almost anybody in any job has to deal with. They just have to deal with the kind of constant changing, especially in tech, but really anywhere, the kind of constant changing environment that we all just have to manage. But I think one thing that I try to do personally, but I credit the team and the company and everybody for promoting is also a little bit of longer term thinking. And so myself and, and everybody on our team, we have a half day in the week that's carved off, no meetings, no engaging with day to day, whatever's going on, spend a half of day really thinking about like a long term initiative that you're working on and trying to promote. And so the day to day, yes, it fortunately and unfortunately, sometimes gets tackled by whatever's going on with the company, the broader environment. But then there are those wonderful, I think, opportunities to just really dive deep to think, okay, how are we going to move the needle in a longer term respect on, you know, the company did this huge commitment about two years ago to racial equity. We have $535 million commitment to racial equity, right? And so there was a lot of very diligent work done in the early days of that to shape it, to determine how it would manifest. And again, just like I talked about with those early meetings with the mission, vision, and values, It's been an incredible success because of that diligence and care taken at those early times. And so I think it's similar on uh, some of that time for me right now is thinking about blockchain and and crypto and that and the development of that space. Some of that time is spent on incredible colleague on my team is working on artificial intelligence and some of the developments in that space that are uh, affecting the financial services industry. Another one is doing an incredible deep dive on that employee financial wellness program that I mentioned, kind of really trying to understand what were the good and bad lessons from that. I just highlight that because I think that is something that I hope is not distinct to my role, but in talking to a lot of people, I feel like it is. And and I want to highlight that because I think it's important to have some of that time to 
really dive deep, think longer term, think more strategically, and really do that work. That's something I'm really passionate about in my own work and for my team. Absolutely. It's fascinating to hear about the different programs you've introduced in the wake of COVID and these other big shifts, because in my perspective, the companies that understand and adapt around changing attitudes towards work, how it happens, where it happens, what it should look like. Those are the companies that are going to be more competitive in the coming years. So very interesting to see how PayPal and you have embarked upon that path. We've spoken at length about your work in global public policy and research and how you stumbled into this career path. But The fact is, it's pretty untraditional for the typical lawyer coming out of law school. Going into big tech, they typically will work as corporate counselor or something of that sort. Did pursuing that route ever cross your mind? 100%. And when I transitioned off of the legal fellowship, my job was as an intellectual property lawyer. So I actually was like a lawyer within the company working on intellectual property, but I was moonlighting, (laughs) doing all (laughs) of the policy stuff that I really love because there wasn't really a role yet for that. And so I was doing the more traditional legal role to be able to still do the stuff that I really liked. I think there's more roles in the policy space now that maybe not brand new lawyers. The fellowship is probably the right path for a brand new lawyer. But becoming a product counsel or corporate counsel or something, and then moonlighting a little bit, you know, engaging with the public policy sphere, if that's something that the person is passionate about, I think there's ample opportunity, especially at the size of these companies and their scale and scope, for people to transition into more policy roles if that's what they're interested in. So, yeah, no, I certainly didn't know what I was doing. And again, that's what's great about this podcast is I think you're debunking. That's the goal. Yeah. And I think it's so important, the work you're doing, Simi, just because I have younger siblings and I have cousins and family members who are younger. And I feel like they look at certain people and they say, oh, well, that person just knew what they were doing or they got there and I'm never going to get there or something. And it's just like, I still don't know what I'm doing, Simi. (laughs) I still don't know. I don't buy that. No, and I, you know, I think most people don't, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. It's a very dynamic world we're all operating in. We're all trying to do our best. And again, I think if your ethos and your focus is on trying to do whatever you can to improve the lives of those around you, like you're going to do great. Yeah. Whatever it is going to be, the person is going to do pretty darn well in life. And I'm pretty sure all the people you've talked to, they are where they are because of that fundamental ethos, whatever that is, not because of some grand plan that they had. So I'm just appreciative of you doing this and raising the awareness of that, especially amongst our community, where I think, again, it's just this notion of like, you just get A's, you you go off to do this, and then you go that do that, and then you're chief of whatever. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's not really how it yeah. works. No, no, I, I really appreciate the kind words. And I think something that you're underscoring that I'm not even sure I underscore enough, though, I'd like to think it's a little bit more implicit in these episodes is it's really not linear. I think it's so easy to go on someone's LinkedIn page and you say they went from X to Y to Z. And it's like, You're missing so much context there, you know, so many mishaps, so many things that didn't work out, so many things that accidentally did work out, like in your case. So I appreciate you reiterating that. And it really captures what we're trying to do with Trailblazers, particularly within our community. 
to that end, something that I've just found so fascinating, in addition to all the great work that you're doing within tech and policy and research, is that you teach Georgetown Law students. What about educating future lawyers interested you? When did you get started with that? And can you share a little bit about your classes? So I mentioned my eldest brother who went in engineering and was definitely a pull to the tech space. I'll reference my other brother just to get the whole family in. <laughs> don't want to leave anyone out. Yeah, I don't want to leave anybody out. So my middle brother was really the first one in our family to break the mold of engineering and, and medical. And he became a professor, actually a full-time academic. That was certainly a motivating factor, I think, in seeing what he was doing. But I've always just loved theory. And I didn't understand what law school was. I think I thought law school was a PhD. <laughs> and so one of the other things that I'm happy to, to share, which South Asians don't share enough, is I didn't do that well in law school. It was hard. And that's okay, too, in part because I thought it was more theory and more academic. And you just write long papers about whatever you want and not you learn property law and here's what the case is and here's how it applies. And so the Georgetown Law experience has been an opportunity for me to scratch that itch, which is great. It's certainly related to my work. Like I've taught issues related to internet law and international trade, which was obviously a big deal at eBay. My first class was on intellectual property law. And then now I'm teaching fintech law, which again, not, not too surprising, man. <laughs> but it's a way to think about the issues that I work on at PayPal, but from a non-PayPal lens, like taking the hat off and really viewing things from a different perspective. And then the students, I mean, they're so smart. They're so thoughtful. And again, they're viewing things from a different way and asking questions in a different way. And then the most gratifying part to me is really their development and what they go on to do. I mean, I had a student in my international trade and the internet class who a few years later shot me an email and said, hey, would you like to grab lunch? And she met me for lunch and she said, you know, I'm actually now the chief trade negotiator on internet issues for the government of Panama. And I was like, oh my wow, gosh. That's, that's pretty amazing. And so, you know, just the, if I had had any small part of that, right, it's a pretty wonderful yeah. thing to feel like, you know, you were able to impact somebody's life in that way. So Management, as you were saying earlier, I think gives you a good deal of that. But teaching is another wonderful way where you can really hopefully see incredible impact on people's lives from something that you might have helped them figure out in themselves. Absolutely. I'm curious. I mean, in the context of your teaching and beyond that, you also collaborate a ton with major research hubs as well as think tanks. What are some of the larger megatrends you've identified that are going to impact the fintech and broader policy landscape over the next decade or so? In my class, I teach that you have to understand the technical, the business slash economic trends, and then you can get to the policy trends because policy is often a reaction to the things that are going on. So in the technical space, certainly I mentioned earlier, artificial intelligence is a huge, huge area that we all need to think about and understand more because what computers can do now is pretty darn incredible. <laughs> um, and yeah. it really has the potential to change every single aspect of our lives, how we interact, how we do work, how we socialize. The metaverse, I think, is kind of a front-end element of that, but artificial intelligence is what potentially enables the metaverse to have 
the kind of, I can't use any other word than humanity, right? Like it's trying yeah. to either match or supersede what humanity has sure. been able to provide to this point. And so that's a fascinating thing to think through. Um, what does that mean? Certainly, you know, I, I mentioned I spend a good deal of time thinking about blockchain and related technologies in that space. And that's really about decentralization. Yep. And that was one of the early promises of the internet. AI, if you've read about it, you know, the 80s were a big time in that space. Like none of this is entirely new. I don't want to make that claim, but I do think what the hardware and software enable us to do at this point makes it more proximate how we have yeah. to think about some of these things. And so thinking a lot about decentralization, uh, uh, certainly within the financial services landscape, but more generally is a huge tech trend that I think sure. quite a bit about. And then the kind of intersection between technology and maybe the second layer of economic business is the inclusion aspect of it. The promise has always been, everybody's going to be part of this. It's going to be amazing. And I think to be balanced, even though I'm obviously, I work at a company in this space, like there are more people connected and able to use these things than at any time in human history. So there's positive there, but there's no way it's everyone and there's no way it's everyone's equal on these systems. Sure. So there's certainly some major room to grow in, in those spaces. And so the key question, I guess, I think a lot about Simi is, will any of these new technologies be more inclusive? Like, will they actually benefit? And again, I'm not saying that previous ones haven't. They have in some respects. And so is there more that can be done to make sure that some of these new technological developments are able to really bring some of that inclusivity that I think is so needed in society right now across, obviously, representation, identity, et cetera, but economic lens as well. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a short summary of some of the big trends that I'm trying to think about right now. Yeah, super fascinating. I'm curious, taking a step back from the tech trends itself, I mean, we keep coming back to this notion of inclusion, which I think really speaks to the global part of your title. What are the ways in which you have global considerations every single day, considering all these different countries and people and communities that you serve? And how do you feel like your identity has also played a role in shaping how you approach that? I usually don't say that's a great question, but that is a really great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> because I think, again, why this podcast is important and thoughtful is that it is really who we are that shapes the kind of work we do. And so having parents from the subcontinent, Asia more generally, I suppose, does give me a strong sense of connection with those communities that are increasingly becoming They've always been by population the biggest thing in the world. And now by economic heft, by political influence, they are now the biggest part of the global environment. And so I do think about that and I do believe it is helpful because I think the biggest way it's helpful to me is also knowing that I'm not Indian, right? I'm not Pakistani. I'm not Bangladeshi. I'm not Chinese. I'm not European. And so... I am American, as I mentioned, very proudly and strongly. And so yeah. I do need to rely upon an incredible team to engage with some of those societies because I'm not going to understand the nuances as well as they would. That's one thing I'm sure you've probably heard on this podcast as well is like, I feel like the more I learn and the more I engage around the world, the more I realize I don't know anything yeah. and that I really need to rely upon other really smart people I need to be able to synthesize large amounts of information into more simple things because I have a relatively 
simple brain. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's beneficial. Coming back to your core question, like it's beneficial to have multiple identities and be able to connect with others, but also there's a million different identities, a million, you know, billions of different of people. Course. They're all different. They're even it's even South Asians, whatever. Well, there's so many oh, divergences we're so within. All, yeah. yeah. So, so I think the humility or the humbleness, whatever you want to call it, is probably the main thing that drives me in that space when engaging internationally is just saying like, I know what I know, which is not that much. And now I need to present that, engage with other people, be wanting to learn, right? I just want to yeah. learn from all of these different people with their different perspectives. And that's the approach I take. Yeah, it's uh, funny that you say that because I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before, but I'll say it again. I view this sort of humility as a marker of intelligence. The smartest people are the ones that always say that they have something to learn from others because they're the type of people to hear others out, consistently listen, and add that to their toolkit, add other people's knowledge and insights to their toolkit. So that's why the next question I have for you is around the advice you have for budding young lawyers just getting started as someone who's had the ability to advance so quickly through your career. I definitely come back to the thing that you've heard and said on this podcast so many times, but I think it's important to repeat it because it matters at those young ages when you're you are struggling to find yourself, find out what you want to do, find out what works for you. Like, that's okay. It's really, really okay. It's really okay to not know. And it's okay to try different things and to explore. And again, that's a South Asian thing. It's like, well, I'm just doing this. So now I'm like, there's not a lot of cutting of losses in South Asian culture, right? It's like, just keep going down that path. And it'll work out. Yeah. 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 So that's one thing. I think another thing is you're never too young to start engaging with the world around you. I mentioned my own civic engagement. I think that's very important of engaging with your community and your society. But even beyond that, If there's an issue set or an area that you are passionate about and you believe you have a good idea on that you can, that's the unique part of the time that we're living in. Like you have the technology, the capability, the platform to get that idea out there. And thanks for mentioning kind of the articles or the academic work or whatever that I do, but I'm not mentioning this for any other reason than to make the recommendation to others is almost every piece I've ever authored was co-authored. Again, coming back to the notion of like, A, I don't know very much, but B, especially when I was young in my career, I would always co-author with like senior people, senior right? People. Like, yeah, big name professor or big name whatever in the field, because sure. that helps you, to your point about accelerating your career, like that's certainly a, a tactic. But I think the bigger strategy is that I would go to these people and I would say, look, like I'm young, I don't know a lot about this space, but I have time and I have like a willingness and inclination to learn about this wow. and to do all the work. That was my first class that you mentioned at Georgetown. I went to somebody who taught at Georgetown before. I said, hey, I have this idea for a class. I'll write the syllabus. I'll do all the work. I'll grade all the papers. You don't have to do anything but show up and put your name on it and propose it to the dean. And she was wonderful enough to do that. So like, that's the benefit of time that you have when you're a little bit junior in your career is you can say yes to a lot of things. You can take risks. You can try different things. You can explore different areas. And so it might seem confusing or scary, but I wouldn't trade any of that for all the struggles, the law school challenges, the figuring out what worked for me. Like it was all good. It was all meaningful. It all led to 
positive things. Embracing that I is believe maybe it. my last piece of advice. Yeah. Oh, it's a really wonderful story, and I appreciate you capturing it so beautifully on taking advantage of those opportunities. And the number one thing I hear now is, especially in your youth, one of your biggest advantages is time. And it sounds like you've really figured out how to leverage that and make that a potent force in your career. The last question I have for you is, you know, you've done so many amazing things to date. What's next for you? I think continuing to support PayPal and help PayPal become this new type of company that I think is more responsible, more engaged with the world around and more aware of broader trends, broader political, economic, social dynamics. And that is a positive force in that, right? Again, I'm, I'm not naive enough to say we're going to solve all these problems and we're the solution that no, but in my personal capacity, which is what I have most control over, trying to maintain that focus and ethics. And again, like the one thing I'll say is it's not easy, right? It's not clear always. It's very challenging and it's very complex, but embracing that is what I want to continue to the extent I've done it to this point. That's great. But I want to continue to kind of embrace that complexity that comes with being in a global giant company operating in very dynamic environments around the world just continuing to kind of try to steer whatever part of the ship I can in a positive direction. I realize that's vague and <laughs> again, very high level and simple, but I think it's a guiding principle that I'm trying to use as things hopefully progress in my career. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it's amazing to speak to someone who's taken so much care with respect to our podcast and the mission that I have here. And I really appreciate you taking the time. You've had such an amazing career and I have no doubt your messages today are going to inspire so many. So thanks, Usman. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.